World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. This podcast was being planned long before the outbreak of COVID-19, but all that changed just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, I'm recording this from home, and everyone we speak to in the coming episodes is also going to be working from home. But the key thing is that they're still working. They're still researching, they're still teaching, and they're still trying to understand how we can wrestle with this global pandemic. Because that is what the podcast is all about. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Social care policy has for decades been an area of deep discussion amongst researchers and policymakers. With its direction, we are told, key to understanding the future of an ageing society. These discussions have not always made front-page news, and perhaps in their complex nature we can see why. Yet in the last few weeks, social care policy has come to the very centre of this global pandemic. If we didn't know it before, we've certainly learnt in this COVID-19 outbreak just how important it is and how many rely on those that work within it. In today's episode, we speak with experts from the Institute of Gerontology, as well as colleagues from Global Health and Social Medicine, about social care. We seek to define what it is. We also look at the unique challenges posed by COVID-19, why we are seeing increased levels of mortality within some social care settings, and critically, what we can do to improve our response. We go on to discuss how this crisis may demonstrate the need for a radically different form of social care and what lessons we can learn from other countries. Our guests include Professor Karen Glazer, Head of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London, Dr Ludovico Jaino, Research Fellow at Global Health and Social Medicine, and Professor Mauricio Avandano Pabon, Director for the Institute of Gerontology at King's College London. I started by asking them all how their lockdown was going. So, I mean, we're going to start the, today's episode like we start all our episodes, and that's to ask how you're doing uh, and how, you, how your lockdown's going. Uh, Karen, if, if you want to go first. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast. And we're now five weeks into the lockdown, and fortunately, I'm well, and I'm getting used to working from home, although it has been uh, harder than I thought uh, to work in this way. It's been harder than expected. Ludovico? Hi, hi everyone. Thanks. I'm very happy to be, uh, to have been invited to this podcast. I'm uh, also working from home. Of course, I am in, in Italy, uh, in my hometown in Trieste with my parents and my girlfriend. It's been tough, but we, we hang on. Hi, hello. Thank you, James, for inviting me um, again to this podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, my lockdown is going uh, generally well, spending less time traveling and more time um, uh, homeschooling my children, reading and uh, cooking on the oven. So it's been uh, difficult, but also uh, good to have time for other things. So today we're going to be talking about social care. 
and and the critical role it's playing in helping tackle COVID-19. I guess we're all quickly becoming aware of the different ways public health and and the NHS is playing a role in dealing with this crisis. I want to start by asking perhaps a, an obvious question, but just in order to kind of set out the boundaries of what we talk what we're talking about in this episode. And I just want to ask what we mean when we say social care. Perhaps Mauricio, if you'd like to give us an outline. Um, yes, of course. Thank you, James, for this question. So um, people use uh, different terms when they refer to these issues. They refer to long-term care. Um, and essentially, um, um, social care refers really to any service and support that is provided usually by a local authority in the UK, but in other countries, it may be private, it may be organized by the national government. Um, and it really has as a name to help um, all the people usually with some level of limitation to maintain good quality of life and to maintain functioning. Uh, now, this usually, um, it's important to understand that um, social care really is very much targeted to often vulnerable people. So, so really, it's sort of, it's often sort of something that is triggered after an assessment of people's uh, ability to function. Uh, now, there are other different distinctions. Uh, obviously, this is not only about caring in nursing homes. Actually, uh, the majority of caring happens at home, uh, as I think Ludovico and Karen will explain to us. So I'll, I'll keep it there, but just to sort of understand this as the general sort of principle of um, social care. Ludovico, Mauricio mentioned there the fact that there are different ways in which it's delivered. We've heard a lot about care homes in this COVID-19 outbreak, but there is two forms of care, and I guess that's home care and institutional care. Is that right, or is there always a strict difference between the two, or is there often a mixture of both for, for many? Uh, yes, James, you are right. And the two main forms are home care and institutional care. And uh, um, although, let's say, relatively more people receive care at home, and uh, we will discuss also this later, institutional care is the more the most expensive part and uh, very relevant for the public budget, the long-term care budget. So let's say that the, the formal care at home can come when a nurse comes to your house, let's say, or at the house of a dependent person to provide injections, to provide help with medications. Other forms of nursing care or social care uh, are help with uh, and support with the limitations that people may have with activities of daily living, like dressing, uh, feeding, bathing, for example, when these limitations are expected to last for, uh, let's say, a uh, a rather extensive amount of time. There are other types of uh, social care, like community care services, like a daycare center, meals on wheels, uh, or cash benefits, for example, in the UK, uh, we have one of these cash benefits, the, the um, attendance allowance, for example. Uh, so the, the formal home care is very important and the, the other main pillar is institutional care. And Karen, for this podcast, I was going back and this reading some of the work that you've done, that, that Mauricio's done, that Ludovico's done. And I know you've focused on care given by family as well and looking at that for various different reasons. Families also play a role in this. This isn't just the state. Yeah, families do. In fact, the majority of care in most countries is provided by families. So I think part of what this crisis has highlighted is if uh, social care kind of care workers disappears, you're seeing, you know, greater family involvement in this type of care. And there are huge variations uh, across countries in the level of involvement in families in care. And one of the things that I think we'll go on to talk about is that also shapes the nature of the social care system, 
of whether you get involvement of the state or of the market or or more of, of families involved in it. And Ludovico, if I could ask, so we've kind of set out what the bounds of social care is. But again, this may be an obvious question. I think it's important to make clear at the beginning of this conversation, which is why is social care important during a pandemic and what critical role does it play? What kind of purpose does it play in particular during a, a health crisis like this? Well, I would say at least two main reasons for the importance of social care. In this context, one is the fact that we know that care in care homes has become a critical issue during this crisis. We know that uh, uh, COVID-19 affects older people disproportionately. And so the, also that the majority of deaths from COVID-19 are, are due to that of older people. And an important part of these deaths are coming from people uh, related to people that live in care homes. So this has really put the attention, the policy attention, the spotlight on care homes. We want to understand why the death rates in these settings are are so high. The other question, the other motive, let's say the other reason for the importance of social care, um, I think relies on the availability of care during uh, social distancing uh, policies where people in need of care may have more difficulties in receiving the care that they need, uh, regardless of whether this is from informal carers like relatives, uh, friends, or uh, from formal carers because of the social distancing policies. And Karen, we know that there's been varied results in terms of infection rates across Europe. We know there are different types of healthcare systems that operate across Europe. Do we also see a difference between different countries in terms of their social care policies as well? Yeah, there are huge differences. Even within Europe, not all countries have kind of uh, developed social care systems. And I guess the way, and this is, I'm grateful to Ludovico for providing uh, a kind of easy way to think about it, is the kind of differences across countries can really be summarized with four kind of W-type questions. Who can get it? So that depends on, you know, access uh, and the rules around access. So how strict countries are in determining who gets it based on the number and types of conditions and disabilities, and who pays for it. So, for example, if you look at Germany, the focus is really on severe and lighter kind of disability limitations, and it's not means-tested, whereas in England it is means-tested. So services are means-tested, although, for example, in Scotland you get free universal care. And then it's what you get. So countries are really divided in terms of cash versus in-kind services. So in England and Italy, is a lot of it's cash-based, and then you can use that to purchase services. In other countries like Sweden, is actually the provisions of services and often publicly provided services. And then, you know, related to what we've been talking about so far is where you get it, either at home or an institution. Always more at home, and I think we'll talk about this a bit more because the, the kind of policies have been to reduce care in care homes, but countries vary in this in terms of the percentage of people in care homes and older people. And then who has responsibility for it? And this gets back to the role of the families, the state and the market, whether it's families who are thought to be more responsible for it or whether it should be the state. You mentioned Germany and Sweden. Have they got a more encompassing state system, at least not necessarily at a federal level, but generally in terms of the public sector? Is this a slight difference between, say, UK and Italy and perhaps the Nordic countries and Germany? 
Yeah, the Nordic countries do have a more publicly funded state system of social care. Uh, in Germany, they have social care insurance. And in England, it's a mixture of both. What I would add to what Karen said, it's that it's very interesting to say to see how um, the same kind of services then provided in countries that are relatively close. And uh, for example, in Sweden and in the Netherlands, the emphasis is on services. And uh, in Sweden, there are a lot of people going to institutions and in the Netherlands as well. Uh, whereas, for example, in Germany, and especially in Italy and also in England, the role of home care is relatively more important. And in particularly in Italy, the role of family uh, is very important in providing home care. And the state perhaps gives... Uh, uh, some compensation to informal caregivers uh, uh, through some national programs. When we discussed this episode, uh, Mauricio kindly sent over some notes that I know you've all contributed to. One of the things that was mentioned was the high level propensity of deaths within care homes. I think it's important to say that as we record this podcast, the picture continues to change. And I know that we've seen figures released recently that show that there has been a, an increased level of deaths within UK care homes, but we're still waiting for further figures. And obviously, each individual case is perhaps different. Why are we seeing more deaths in care homes than we are perhaps in other parts of the NHS or care system? So that's an absolutely key question and one that's being asked around the world is why are we seeing so many deaths in care homes? And the first reason may be because in a care home, you have high-risk populations in high-risk settings. So I, I mentioned before that it's important to remember that those in care homes are often the oldest old, so those 85 and over. And a lot of what we've seen so far shows that age is a, a really significant risk factor for COVID-19. So those in, uh, in, you know, in care homes are, amongst, are also amongst the, the most medically vulnerable. So they're those with long-term comorbid conditions, that's multiple complex health conditions, so they're really seriously ill. And of course, we've also seen that evidence suggests that those with underlying conditions are also at higher risk of COVID. And Karen, what are the kinds of things we can do to help reduce risks within care homes? Well, there's been some discussion, and I guess this relates to your later question about, you know, what type of care might be better. Uh, in this kind of epidemic, that, you know, of the possibility of if you introduced certain protocols, you know, so social distancing measure, extensive and earlier testing, that those might be ways to actually be able to control the disease within care homes. And that really relates to the kind of nature of one thing is, you know, why infection rates so high and death rates so high in care homes. So the kind of the composition of those who are in care homes and the other reason may lie in the role of social care itself. So, you know, because you have such close proximity between residents, between residents and workers, you know, people visiting patients and, and, and also workers working across multiple care homes. So all of this puts people at greater risk. And also these facilities weren't designed or equipped to really treat patients with serious COVID-19. And Mauricio, Karen mentioned the staff that work within care homes. I know in previous conversations, we've spoken about the way in which our healthcare is structured, in particular, the mixture of private and public sector delivery. One striking thing has been to hear of some of those care workers, the hours they work, the pay that they receive. And due to that, the fact that uh, at least here in the UK, they may work across multiple sites. 
And I've heard similar stories and we was reading before this episode about similar cases in the US where you've got care workers who are working across multiple sites because they need to due to economics. So has that perhaps played a role in this pandemic? And is that something we're going to have to look at in terms of managing it long term? That's a very critical question, James. And as um, as Karen was saying, I think the, 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 the second sort of component of whether the social care structure may have a role, uh, it's important in those two ways. First, whether the structures in the social care homes, such as, for example, the level of crowding, the fact that um, there is sharing of bathroom facilities and you know gathering in common areas and uh, the level of preparedness for infection control, those are aspects within the social care system that might be important. But as you uh, well point out, there may be also issues about the particular staffing uh, issues in care homes that are important. For example, we know that workers in caring home settings, they have a very high turnover. This is a population very much rotating and working in different institutions, relatively low-skilled population. There is also a very high resident-to-staff ratio. These are not also constantly due, the ratios are very high. Um, there's also relatively uh, no levels in some settings of preparation in terms of prevention and control um, to the potential spread of the epidemic. Uh, now, one potential um, constraint as well is that much of the emphasis of um, the use of equipment to protect workers has focused on NHS workers, so workers in the healthcare setting, and that absolutely makes sense. But there has been much less emphasis on the need for protecting equipment for staff in care homes, which is absolutely essential because, as you know, and perhaps this didn't get mentioned in the beginning, but the case fatality ratio, the probability of dying and being hospitalized as well, but the probability of dying for somebody who is above the age of 70, which is the majority of the population in care homes, is much higher than for the rest of the population. This is a variable figure, but uh, estimates speak of around 13 to 14% case fatality ratio for the population 80 years and older, as opposed to around 8% for those aged 65 to 69, and somewhere around 0.06 for the 50 to 54, and from there much lower for the younger age groups. So this is a critical population and basic nursing homes essentially would have needed to prepare much better for responding to staffing issues. Now, you were asking before also this question of what kind of lessons we can learn or what kind of actions nursing homes can take in order to prevent the spread of the epidemic. And I think sort of current points and some important issues, but I think the level of preparedness across nursing homes is a critical issue that might need to be addressed because there is huge variations across different institutions. And there's also huge variation in the level to which it is possible for them to carry out some of the recommendations, such as the need for isolation in separate rooms or having a quarantine area. This is not always possible for others. As I mentioned, the availability of personal protective equipment was not something that many nursing homes were prepared for. Um, and in general, the level of preparation to containing COVID-19 was really very variable. And, and that's sort of what comes out from much research around the world from Singapore and, and as well from the U.S. And without going into, we're going to come on to discuss a wider discussion, perhaps about what kind of social care policy and system a country might want uh, going forward to try and help deal with this situation. But have there been any countries that have demonstrated real success in how they've delivered social care during this crisis? There were some articles in March that were documenting how in Singapore, the nursing homes had uh, zero, very very low, actually zero number of COVID-19 
patients affected, patients affected, residents affected by COVID-19. And one of the reasons for this is that they managed and succeeded in implementing higher higher precautionary uh, procedures and uh, protocols, uh, also caring a lot for the post-hospitalization phase when patients come back from the hospital. And they implemented repeated testing uh, and uh, also strict uh, isolation uh, policies that may also have uh, undesirable consequences on the well-being of patients. But what I wanted to say is that actually then in Singapore, I think the first uh, infections in nursing homes happened around the mid-April. So what they had some positive COVID-19 positive uh, residents in Singapore's nursing homes, but they managed to delay a lot the onset of these first uh, infections. And hopefully and the numbers are much lower. So um, that might be an interesting case study. Sorry, just to add to Ludovico's point. Yeah, so as Ludovico says, there, there are some countries that indeed have had a lower portion of that uh, so far with the temporary data we have. I mean, Singapore is one of them. Australia is potentially one of the countries that has also had relatively lower proportion of death in nursing homes. Now, one of the lessons more in general from this epidemic is that many of the East Asian countries, um, and actually um, I'm involved at the moment in a report that um, a group in Kings is um, publishing on this, that many lessons that Asian countries learned from their prior epidemic and that has actually in general led to a better implementation of many control measures in, in, in that part of the world. Uh, now, this includes partly China, but it's included also, um, you know, Taiwan, uh, Singapore. Uh, many of these countries were able to implement measures much earlier and in generally responded. So much of their better mortality might relate to overall more effective measures rather than sort of uh, very specific um, interventions within the home care settings. So we've spoken about what we mean when we're talking about social care. We've spoken about the particularly adverse impact this crisis has had on social care. I now want to just turn to actually thinking about what we may want to look to improve, both in terms of meeting this crisis, COVID-19, trying to reduce some of the mortality within care homes and in social care settings, but also in terms of long term about improving social care. I know one of the things that you'd want to discuss today and, and one of the things we might want to think about in terms of perhaps a next stage in the development of our social care system was an integrated care model. So perhaps, um, Ludovico, you could let us know and give us a bit more information about what we mean when we say integrated care. Yes, James, I, I'm happy to, to talk about integrated care, which is, a, I read it's about like a Rorschach test. So it's a very nice word with which uh, people mean very, I mean, different, but con- coherent, consistent things. Integrated care, the need for integrated care stems from, I think, two key critical characteristics of our current systems. The, the fragmentation, which is like, uh, you can imagine like blurred lines between the various aspects of, pay, of care that people can receive. Uh, the famous, infamous distinction and overlap between social and uh, health care, for example. And then the, the fact that we have service centered care provisions so that many times the the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing in providing care and help to to people. In the UK, as in most other countries, this is exactly because we have a separation between healthcare and and social care. In the UK, 
social care is often considered as the sort of a Cinderella service uh, with respect to NHS and also uh, some raised discussion also related to availability, for example, of uh, PPE also during the COVID uh, crisis. So in a way, the, the, when we talk about integrated care, we talk about a horizontal integration, a sort of um, integrated system, let's say integration across different systems. No? So to bring social and healthcare uh, uh, under, under one umbrella, I would say it, it would be a person-centered approach compared to the service-centered approach. So a person-service approach where the individual needs are assessed and the comprehensive care plan is developed around the needs of the individual to maintain it, his or her uh, well-being and capacity. This may involve, for example, a single point of entry into the system, a single care manager for assessment, integrated systems for sharing information uh, across services and the coordination of uh, services. And it has been shown that this is especially important for people with multiple conditions. And Karen, is there anywhere currently that does have an integrated care system in, in this way that Ludovico has, has outlined? There are few, but there are countries that have integrated care systems. Canada is one of these. So what you're trying to do, as Ludovica said, is build closer connections between health and social care. The idea that would not only only provide a kind of a better service and outcomes for, in this case, older people, disabled or vulnerable older people, but also the idea behind it, and this is where we know less, is that the, the workforce within social care or healthcare would be treated more equitably. And this is part of the problem that Maurizio was referring to before about there has been this idea that, you know, those who are working in the NHS got personal protective equipment and that care workforce have been uh, more exposed, although, the, you know, this is being addressed now. But I think a key problem with the integrated care and something that we really don't know a lot about, whether health or social care is separated or not, there is an emphasis now on keeping people at home as much as possible. And that policy would suggest a reduction in uh, diseases like COVID-19 because people are less likely to end up in A&E. And that's a major outcome. And studies in Canada have suggested that people are more likely to stay at home and not end up in A&E. But what we don't know is whether how the, these kinds of systems would affect care and care homes. So if we look at data that we've got for Canada, and you see similar proportions with the data we have, about half of COVID-related deaths are in care homes. And you still see, in, even in Canada, although that's, so, so it might be beneficial in reducing the number of deaths from COVID-19 because you've got less people going into care homes or hospitals. But the proportion of deaths is pretty similar uh, at about 50-60%. So while it might be that such systems are better at helping frail older people remain at home, a large share of deaths is still occurring in care homes. And what we don't know, and this is bringing us back to what we've discussed before, is whether it's just that these are kind of high-risk settings with, you know, very medically vulnerable populations, or is it about how the care is delivered? And, you know, whether there are really differences in how care is delivered in care homes in an integrated care system. We've heard some of the advantages of an integrated care system. And, and Karen, you mentioned there some of the advantages of care at home, although we're not quite sure at the moment in this pandemic whether that is necessarily better. What are the reasons why this hasn't happened? Why don't we have an integrated system in the UK, for example? 
Well, that that's a tough question. <laughs> there is a movement, you know, to to integrate the two systems, but it's very service led. So this all dates back to the kind of foundation of the NHS. So the NHS was clearly set up to deliver healthcare. It was going to be free at the point of delivery. Uh, social care was also within initial thinking, but this was always devolved down to local government versus the kind of national level. And so initially, it was about vulnerable older people, you know, the kind of how to protect them in care homes. A lot of it was to do with care homes, even though you had an emphasis on community care. That's always been there. And that has been emphasized more recently. And really, the movement has been a way for moving people away from care homes and into kind of care in the community and the best way to support people at home. I just may add a very small thing. Uh, so the, the NHS is already the, the fifth, I think, largest employer in the world. It employs around 1.7 million uh, people. And the, the social care sector in the, in the UK employs, I think, around 1.5, 1.6 million people, uh, everything considered. So the, that would easily become the largest employer in the world, more than the, the Chinese Army and the U.S. Department of Defense. So it needs careful, of course, careful, careful planning. So thinking ahead in terms of what might happen as a result of this crisis and the COVID-19 outbreak, what do we think might change in the social care setting? So Ludovico, if you could kick us off. Well, James, uh, for example, I think that uh, telehealth and telemedicine might be boosted by this. And we might see an increase in the type of services that are provided remotely to older people at home or in nursing homes. This may provide an opportunity to improve care uh, for people that have difficulties in accessing care or um, even increase the contacts between people and their practitioners, for example. Yeah, what I can see, which is definitely changing, is the increasing um, recognition of the importance of social care. And in terms of big changes, we've actually seen that funding of the social care and the number of people getting of social actually the number of people getting social care has actually been declining of older people. And what I'd like to see in the future is that increasing because there's a suggestion there's a lot of unmet need and this is likely to have important implications. So increased numbers getting receiving social care would be great. And Mauricio. Thank you, James. I think procedural changes, I think, are going to become increasingly important. The development of protocols, the increasing coordination, perhaps, between public health agencies and um, care homes. Um, there's definitely an increase in awareness, as Karen was saying. And potentially, one would hope also that the stockpiling of personal protection, equipment, uh, masks, and all that is needed for caring for all the people will come, um, as well as training and potentially some thinking about how to address the issue of isolation when we have this crisis. Now, the second question to larger changes, I think that uh, really taps into more political decisions that are harder to think about. For example, the question about the working conditions of social care workers, as uh, Karen was describing, this really sort of relates to broader trends of a very precarious working population, not only within social care, but in many different sectors in the economy um, that actually have been particularly hit very strongly by um, the uh, lockdowns as we have seen 
in European countries, including the UK. So I think uh, one would hope that one might raise bigger questions about the working conditions of uh, precarious um, employers, employees um, and the role that the government and the state can play in regulating their employment conditions. Mauricio, you're the director of the Institute of Gerontology here at King's, uh, which we know is playing a massive role in understanding ageing and social care. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the Institute? So the Institute of Gerontology at King's uh, really aims to investigate the major challenges uh, of health and social care, but also the social, economic and policy consequences of ageing populations, the fact that all countries in the world, including the UK, are becoming older. And this is happening in both developed and uh, in both low as well as high and middle income countries. The Institute was uh, founded in 1986 and really sort of has, over the decades, focused on different issues. We look at the issues of how we think about ageing across the life course, but also long-term care, employment in older age, social participation, how do we design cities and uh, how do we design sort of environments, social housing, and how generations relate to each other and how their well-being can be improved uh, by policies and by, uh, by governments. As always, a big thank you to all our guests on today's episode. Karen, Ludovico and Mauricio. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.